great to see you. If you've got a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to John chapter 4? That's where we're going to be. And yes, no bumper this morning, uh, but I can tell you that our amazing bumpers will return to us next weekend, okay? So if you're wanting that, it's coming next weekend. We start a brand new series next weekend. It's called Mindset, and the the subtitle for that is Taking Every Thought Captive. So, uh, if it ever comes up, it's there. It's a super practical series uh, looking at the struggles we face in our hearts with our emotions and our thought life, and we're going to walk through that as we start September. We just thought that was a really great start to think about things like anxiety and anger and and frustration and all the things that we don't like to talk about that's coming up uh, in the week ahead. And actually, by the way, the week ahead next weekend, uh, Lord willing, standing in this place will be Pastor Key, who's back from sabbatical. So very excited for that. But today we're looking at worship and I want to look at true worship today. And I want to do that using a story. I want to take us to an encounter with a woman and Jesus at a well in Samaria. Uh, So John chapter 4, this is early in Jesus' ministry, and he's traveling in the territories surrounding Jerusalem, and he makes a pit stop in a very unlikely place. And I want to explain that for us, but let's first dive into John chapter 4, verse 1. John chapter 4, verse 1 says this, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Verse 3, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. Okay, so Jesus is on the move. And because I know that y'all love maps, because every person loves maps, uh, here is a picture of where we're going, and it's significant. You can see that the south is Judea, and you can see Samaria up there a little bit higher, and Galilee to the north. So Jesus wants to go from Judea to Galilee, okay? Uh, so uh, he's got to cross, but to do that, he's got to travel through the province of Samaria, A little bit about Samaria to help you understand this. Uh, Their history goes back way, way, way back. Way back to the times of Israel and Judah and the kings of the land. The Samaritans, people that were occupying that land at the time of Jesus, claimed to be descendants of Jewish people. They were part of the ten tribes that were displaced by the Assyrians in 722, 700 years before Jesus Uh, They were picked up and they were moved and they were brought into new lands. And then eventually they wandered back in. And they said, they're Jewish people. But the Jewish people said, no, you're not. Uh, Assimilated people look very different, don't they? Uh, Pretty soon cultures start to blend. Pretty soon you start to speak Spanglish at home. Pretty soon marriages happen and babies happen and cultures shift and cultures change and then a new culture is born. That's what's happening in Samaria. In the eyes of the first century Jews, you are not a Jew if you are from Samaria. In fact, you're worse than even a Greek. You are a second-class citizen. You're a wannabe. You're a faker. You're not really a Jew. You're actually a Samaritan, and your slang term for you is dog. So 
not a great place to be. And listen, if you were in uh, Jerusalem and you were a Jew and you were in Judea and you wanted to travel north to Galilee, the way that you would do this, the common custom, is to skirt the edge of Samaria. You would actually step across into another province, walk up the Jordan River, and then scoot back into Galilee. Because heaven forbid you step foot in Samaria. It's just so awful. That's like the part of the country you don't ever want to go to. That's like Pittsburgh. Why would you want to go to Pittsburgh? Oh, you want to go around Pittsburgh. Uh, No emails, please. Okay, Uh, but here is Jesus, okay? Uh, He's not doing that. In fact, verse 4, he had to pass through Samaria. Why is that? Verse 5, it says. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Okay, Jesus is thirsty from his journey. He wants something to drink. But even as far as Jesus has just walked, he's just met somebody more weary than him. In fact, he's just met somebody more thirsty than him. But Jesus is about to change this with a lesson in worship. And church, that's the point of today's message. As we step into the story, this is foundational for us to see what Jesus wants us to see, the foundation for true worship. So this isn't so much a story as it is a direct communication from God to us. It's a story, a direct communication that Jesus gives us to teach us some foundational truths about worship. Foundational truths that if you have eyes to see and a heart to listen, they can transform you. So before we even go any further, let me pause and let me ask the one who can transform for his help. Let's pray. Father, perhaps a familiar story, perhaps a story that we've heard maybe dozens of times. So even more important, Lord, that you would reach now, that you would help now, that you would speak now, be stirring in our hearts, Lord to see perhaps truths that we have never seen before. That we would firmly experience the reality of the living word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, God, I pray that you would be speaking to us today the things that we need to hear, the truths that we need to feel today. God, lead us into this great truth. Lord, make us worshipers. Make us understand why this is so important and then transform us. Lead us, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so let me lay out the foundational truths of worship. There's four of them for us in our text today. And they actually follow a definite order. One has to happen first, then the next, then the next, then the next. Okay, so here's the first. When it comes to true worship, one, Jesus makes the first move. Jesus is going to make the first move. Now, at one level, this is pretty obvious. After all, Jesus is the one who's done all the walking. He's done all the traveling. He's the one who's worn out. And all she did was walk up to the well. But more than this, Jesus is the one who engages with this woman in the conversation. Now, that may not seem like much to us today when men and women will freely talk to one another out in public, uh, chatting it up at the grocery store with a complete stranger, but this is not a thing that is done in this culture. In fact, the woman is so taken aback by Jesus speaking to her that she says this in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. 
And then John makes it clear, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so did you catch this? Uh, there's actually three barriers that Jesus crossed. He just blasted through when he spoke to this woman. One, he's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. Two, he's a man and she's a woman and that doesn't happen. And then actually three, Jesus is a rabbi and she's a woman. That doesn't happen. Why are you talking to me, she says. What business have you got chatting with me? This conversation should not be happening at all. Hold that thought. One other piece of information that's really important that you might have missed, we could overlook, is in verse 6, where we're told that this is the sixth hour of the day. That detail is really important, too, because at the time of this writing, the sixth hour is not 6 a.m. like we would write it. It's six hours from the start of the day, which is actually 6 a.m. So, Six plus six. What time of day is this? This is noon. This is the middle of the day. But look, if you come from a culture that draws water from a well, you don't do it at noon. It's way too hot. We understand that, right? You do it first thing in the morning and then it may be at the end of the day. The only good reason to draw water from a well at noon is you've run out of water. Or you don't want to see people. You don't want to run into the other women who are drawing water. That's her reason. But more on that in a second. For now, though, there's many reasons why this man should not be talking to this woman. But Jesus has made the first step. Jesus has seen this woman. Jesus has come to speak to this woman because Jesus has something to offer to this thirsty woman. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, who it is, who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Living water is actually a term meaning moving water. It's water from a creek. It's water from flowing down from a mountain. It's water from a river. It's water from a stream. It's water from a fountain. In other words, it's moving. And in contrast to well water, it's always better. We always want moving water, clear creek water, than well water. Uh, so the woman is intrigued. You don't even have a spoon. You don't even have a cup. You don't even have a bucket. How are you going to get me this living water from that well? How's that going to happen? Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Wait a second. Jewish man at the well talks to me and offers me the opportunity to, one, never be thirsty again, two, Never come to this well ever again to see those people ever again. And then three, eternal life? Well, it's no wonder then that the thirsty woman says in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. See this? Or have to come here to draw water. Verse 16. Here we go. Watch this. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. You feel that? 
the conversation has just taken a screeching turn. You can hear a pin drop in this moment. Now watch how the woman responds in verse 17. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you've actually had five husbands. And the one that you are with now is not your husband. What you've said is true. And now it all comes crashing down. And now it's all exposed. Five husbands, one current lover, that's six men at least. Now it all makes sense, right? Now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense why this woman comes here to draw water at noon. Now it all makes sense why she wants the living water so she doesn't have to come back here, talk to the women of town, probably not even talk to them, actually get the sideways glances, get the scowling looks from the women, just be scorned by them. She's despised by the people. She's a homebreaker. She's a man stealer. Now it all makes sense. Now it all makes sense. She's despised and rejected by despised and rejected people. She's the lowest of the low. Her life is filled with sin and shame. Now it all makes sense. She's hiding. Verse 19, it's not on the screen. It says, she says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I understand that something is very different about you. Something very different is going on in this situation right now. It all makes sense why I am here. But what doesn't make sense is why you a Jewish rabbi, a prophet even, is talking to me. Now here, let me just pause the story and regroup because this is not just a story. This is a conversation between God and us right now through the living word of God. And God is teaching us about worship. And we've already seen that Jesus is the one who makes the first move. He came to Samaria to meet this woman at this specific hour. Make no mistake, this is not an accident. He had to pass through Samaria, the text said in verse 4. He had to come here. She was hiding, her life was hiding, but she's just been found. Jesus makes the first move and he offers her something that will change her life forever. So we're looking at the foundational truths of worship. One, we see this. Not only does Jesus initiate worship, but secondly, Jesus sees all of me. We're looking, we're looking at the essence of worship to understand it better, and we need to hold these twin truths together. Do you understand? Do you understand as well for you today that it was also Jesus who initiated worship for you also? Okay, taking a journey from Jerusalem to Samaria is one thing, but how about a journey from the eternal throne room of heaven as creator and sustainer of the universe, from co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, Jesus steps into humanity for you. Can you think of a more wearisome journey? Can you think of anything more awful than, than being God eternal and then all of a sudden clothing yourself in humanity, cursed frail, tired humanity. But this is what Jesus did for you and I. Jesus traveled even further for us. Jesus initiates worship. He moved to us. And what's more, he comes with the same offer of living water, not just from a stream or, or a river, but life that comes from him and him alone. The offer of salvation by him and from him and for him because Jesus came, because Jesus lived, because Jesus died, because Jesus rose again on the from the cross, I can have rivers of life in my life as well. You see, Jesus initiated worship for us, but he also, secondly, sees all of me. You understand this, like, like when Jesus calls a man or a woman, 
he knows who you are. When he invites you into worship, he knows the struggles. He knows the shame. He knows the things that keep your head low. He knows the regrets and the mistakes and the challenges. He sees you. His invitation is not for perfect people. His invitation is, listen, for broken people. Jesus sitting in a well talking with a woman, a broken woman of the town, is no different than you and I. And nothing, nothing can be hidden from the sight of Jesus. I mean, you can fake it, right? You can fake it with your kids. You can fake it with your friends. You can fake it with your spouse. You can fake it with your coworkers. You can fake it with your family and your church and even with your pastors. But you can't fake it with Jesus. He sees it all. He sees the fears. He sees the anxieties. He sees the anger in the heart and the anger in the home. He sees the hopelessness. He sees the despair. He sees the grief. He sees the shame. He sees the late nights. He sees the conversations. He reads the texts. He looks at the websites. He, has the pr- he sees the pride in you. He sees the greed, the arrogance, the lust. There's no hiding with Jesus. You see, it makes sense why the woman would come to the well at noon. She wants to avoid the exposure. But what doesn't make any sense is why the Son of God would come to that well. It doesn't make any sense until you realize that it's because he loves her. He came to Samaria to this woman at this specific hour. This is not a mistake. He had to pass through Samaria, said verse 4. Why is that? Because she's here. In all her brokenness, this woman is deeply loved by Jesus. That's what makes this first step so incredible. Okay, church, what does this have to do with worship for us even today? Well, there's a couple lessons here. One, we can only worship because Jesus has come for us. He came, he died for us, he rose again, and now he offers life to us, all because he loves us. Without this, there's no worship at all. But then also, secondly, when we come to him, we come to him in place of need. We're broken, and the sooner we realize our continual need for Jesus, the sooner we can continue to grow as worshipers. You see, there's often a mistake that, that, that we make in church life where we think, okay, now, the, 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 the measure of maturity for me in Christ is my increasing independence from these things, uh, increasing self-reliance. But that's not it. In fact, it's an increasing dependence that measures maturity. Maturity is actually measured by this. The longer that you live in Christ, the more you will realize in greater and greater and greater degree that you can't do anything without him. And when your heart, when you allow your heart to be scoped by the Lord like that, and you see this in your heart, and your heart sees the need for him, and all of your failings and all of your faults, well, that just fuels worship. That brings you here. That brings you wherever you are, lifting your arms, crying out to the Lord for great grace and great help. You know what I believe? I believe the Lord wants us to see this more in our lives, to look in the mirror and actually see our hearts, to pour that fuel on our worship. Well, there's more for the story. The story, this true lesson on true worship continues. In verse 20, it continues on. I've got two more to show you. Uh, Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, she says, but you say... That in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. That's curious. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, 
for salvation is from the Jews. Okay, quickly, the woman has a question about worship that needs answering. Uh, for the Samaritans and the Jews, in fact, this land that Samaria occupies is actually a pretty important land. Uh, actually, a lot of great things happen in this land. Joshua walked this land. Jacob walked this land. Abraham walked this land. But the Samaritans, who left 700 years ago, they only had part of the story. They had literally only part of the Bible. Uh, they had rejected the prophets. They had rejected the historical books. They had rejected all the poetry books. They didn't have Psalms in their Bible. They only had Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and that's it. That's all they have together. So they have a different temple. They've got different holy mountain. They've got different scriptures, different practices all together. What about that, Jesus? What about that? Well, here he continues the lesson. Jesus strips away the idea that worship is actually found in form and in structure and goes to the most important thing. It's not in the outward stuff, guys. It's in the heart. Look what he says in verse 23. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. This makes sense. God's spirit. And so worship of God transcends any kind of physical building. Worship doesn't happen just in this building. Worship doesn't happen just in any other church building. It goes beyond the building walls. God is looking for something more than just setting up a building and singing a song. God's looking for all of us. Worship is not just a Sunday-only activity. Worship is not just confined to the morning service. Worship is meant to be everywhere, all the time. Worship is not an event. Listen, it's a lifestyle. But that's the problem, right? We lock worship into a box on Sunday mornings. And we say, this is the time that I worship. And then what happens is, actually, we worship throughout the week... But we don't think that we worship because our problem is that we are always worshiping something. Our problem is not that we don't worship. Our problem is that we're worshiping the wrong things. What do you mean by that, Craig? Well, the struggles that you have with anxiety, is that not a worship of self? Is that not a worship of I've got to control my life? What about the struggles maybe in lying that you have? Is that not a worship of self, of, of power and control that you want to have? Well, the struggle you have with lust is that not a worship of self. A worshiping self and finding all the comfort and all the pleasure in this life. And the list goes on and on and on and on. You see, we have a worship problem. That's the problem. We have a worship problem because way down in the deep roots of me in our lives, through the mess of this churning, selfish heart of mine, is a heart that constantly fights to worship me. I'm always worshiping. I'm always doing it. The problem is, is I'm doing it way too much and I'm worshiping myself. And listen, couldn't it be said that everything that we fight, every battle, everything that makes you insecure, everything that makes you scared or discouraged or angry or anxious, everything that you hope nobody ever sees in your heart, the stuff that you hope nobody ever notices, it could be said that every single one of those things is a root of wrong worship holding fast. In other words, every single sin is a failure to be a true worshiper of God. But listen, the worship of self leads to disaster. It leads to despair. It leads to hopelessness. And Jesus didn't have any of that. He came to break the cycle. He came to free us and to lead us into true worship. And what does Jesus tell us he's looking for? He's not looking for walls. He's not looking for structure. He's not looking for mountains. He's not looking for temples. He's looking for spirit and truth spirit and truth now by the way this is not the holy spirit he's talking about the language won't let us do that with this 
But that's not to deny the Holy Spirit's part in worship. What Jesus is talking about here is the spirit and truth of man. It's the engaged in the truth and my whole spirit. This is total engagement. That's what Jesus wants. And, and, not, and with that, Jesus gives us a third fundamental truth. Okay, So here's the, here's the truth. Jesus initiates true worship. He sees all of me, and that fuels worship. But then the third thing is this. Jesus calls all of me to respond. Isn't it true that you can think about things without ever feeling them deeply? It's true, right? That's how you pump gas. That's how you do math. You don't ever feel emotively connected to a math problem. Maybe you do. That's great. But that's odd. Uh, maybe you, isn't it also true that you can feel things deeply without ever really thinking about it? Like, like you know, you, the way that you love dogs, you just love dogs. This is awesome. Or you love chocolate chip cookies. You don't ever think about that stuff. That's 100% emotion, right? Uh, but Jesus wants all of you. 100% emotion, 100% thought. Truth, spirit, all together. Why does he ask for this? Because he doesn't have it. God wants worship that's dialed into the heart as well as the head. God wants our minds as well as our affection. He wants all of you. Churches, isn't this true? that you consider the songs that we sing on Sunday mornings. I'm convicted of this even this morning. My mind runs to something else in the middle of that. How much of my heart is fully engaged in the words that I sing? I've got truth. My mouth is going with truth, but my heart isn't there. Consider the sermons. How much moves your heart as well as your mind? Consider your Bible reading. How much is of just about information intake without your heart being truly engaged? Sometimes our hearts are there. We're feeling it. We're feeling it. We're feeling it. But we're not thinking about what we're feeling. And sometimes our minds are there. Oh, that's a great truth. Oh, I really like that. But you never let the truth come and hit your heart. But Jesus wants total engagement. He wants affection and mind put together. Think of it this way, okay? If it's all truth, 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 truth. You're just a, just a Bible head, just a big fat Bible head. Truth, 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 truth. Did you know that in this catechism it says this? And did you know that in the, the second writings of John Calvin it says this? And did you truth, 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 truth. And I've got all this. You know what happens there? You completely puff up. Puff up. Knowledge puffs up, says Paul. What happens if it's just spirit, you know, just totally vibing with everything? I don't know how to do that because I, I don't dance. But you're vibing, oh, I just feel that, and I feel that, and I feel that, and I feel, and I feel this about this, and I woke up this morning with this feeling, and that's how God's leading. Feeling, 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 feeling. You know what happens there? If you got all truth, you puff up. If you got all, all feeling, all spirit, you blow up. But if you've got spirit and truth, you're going to grow up. God wants all of you says Jesus. Okay, quickly, let me wrap this up, because something's changing in this scene. Verse 23, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, this is another moment. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the first time he said that in John's gospel, and not to a Jewish person, but to a Samaritan, and not to a man, but to a woman. He reveals who he is to them. Here's the second time you can have a pin drop heard, right? It's a moment powerful, and then it's ruined by the disciples who come back. Verse 27, just then the disciples come wandering back. I just picture the music, doop dee doo here they are. And they marveled that he was talking to a woman. How absurd, right, in our 21st century. 
But no one said, what do you want from her? Why are you talking to her? No one's saying that. The boys have returned, and they have seen this scandalous moment. They have marveled, in fact, at it. But they didn't say anything to Jesus. That's a good move. But the woman has heard enough. Look what she does, verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? See this, she leaves her water jug. Why do you leave a water jug? Because it isn't important. And because you can run faster without a water jug, right? She goes down to the town. Everybody, 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 listen up. I know what you think about me. I know what you think about me. But you've got to meet this guy. I know that I've had six men, but I want to introduce you to one man who has changed my life. And here's the last fundamental truth of worship Jesus wants us to see. Jesus takes the first step. He sees all of me. He calls me to respond. And now, lastly, through worship, Jesus transforms me. Reading on, we read the rest of the story. The woman will never, ever be the same. She leads the whole town out, in fact. She's met the Christ, and things are going to change forever. He came to her. He found her when she was hiding, and he led her into truth. Why does worship matter so much? I'm almost done. Why does worship matter so much? Well, because it actually is for our good that we worship the Lord. God's wired that in us, that we worship him. There are certain essential, desperate needs of humanity that we find answered in worship. Like, I desperately want to be seen. I desperately want to be noticed. I desperately want to be an individual who's recognized by someone of value. And you are. Jesus sees you. He sees you even now in your brokenness. Okay, I desperately want to be seen, but I also really want to be valued. And you are. Can you think of a higher price that could be paid for you than the life of the eternal Son of God? You're seen and you're valued. Okay, I desperately want to have meaning and purpose in my life. And you can. As a child of God, his arms are open. And the last one, I desperately want to be more than I am right now. And you can. Because through worship, through a life of worship, Jesus transforms you. Listen, it is true that worship is not about us. But it is for us. Jesus came to fix what's broken in us. To make us these true worshipers. To transform us. To grow us. To change us. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that with a story so good of Jesus, who is so awesome. I pray, God, that affections be rising for him again. He'd be peeling back the curtain for us to see, to delight. And that knowledge would lead to heart right now, even right now, Lord. That we would be worshiping even right now through this story. But then also, God, that you would transform our lives. Begin that work in us, God, to change us to make us more like you. And Lord, maybe for some today, it's just the hearing again of God sees me right now in the place that I'm in and the things that I'm struggling with 
they just need to be thrown back to him. They just need to be surrendered. I just need to turn. I just need to repent. I just need to leave that behind. And that be the act of worship today. God, I pray you be stirring in hearts in that way as well. Lord, for some, maybe even today, the struggle between spirit and truth. And, you know, my mind is engaged, my heart is not. Or my heart is engaged, my mind is not. Lord, I pray for growth in that as well. That you would make us deeper students of your word. That doesn't lead to Bible-headedness but that leads to a growth in our love for you. Like we would read a love letter, it stirs our knowledge of and our affections towards you. So Lord, please, we pray that you would make us the kind of people who worship you, who delight, who freely live for you in this way. Be glorified in this, we pray in Jesus' name.